Well, we're excited to uh, speak with you this morning on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And so sort of uh, like when Thomas, if you remember, preached that really timely message uh, and fitting message on Mother's Day on that also traditional Mother's Day passage of David and Goliath. Uh, you remember that when he did that? Well, just as you would expect it to be on Mother's Day, right? Uh, so on this Thanksgiving, uh, like Thomas, not to be too on the nose here, uh, but we're preaching on submission and headship on Thanksgiving weekend. And I know, I know, we're, we're, we're on target. We're very predictable here at Oceanside. But we're excited to do this, better late than never, because it's something people ask about all the time, partly because we are an egalitarian church where women lead and preach, and also because Joseph and I are co-lead pastors. And people often want to know how does that work exactly and who's really in charge. So it will be really helpful if you open your Bibles. If you have them with you, there's some on the back table that you're welcome to borrow or take with you. If you have them to follow along, the text that we're speaking from today is Ephesians chapter 5. And although this topic is wide-ranging throughout Scripture, we're going to focus on this biblical passage. So let's start there, but look at the context, because verse 21 doesn't come out of nowhere. It actually follows the previous thoughts, and it's connected grammatically in the Greek text to the exhortation in verse 18, which is, be filled with the Spirit. Paul then give several examples of the evidence or outworking, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and lastly, submitting to one another. So because this is quite literally a spiritual matter, let's go to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit for his guidance in this learning today. Let's uh, prepare our hearts and pray together. Our Lord... We confess our utter dependence on your spirit, as the text exhorts us to, to live the way you want us to live, to, to love the way you want us to love. Lord, without you, we will always turn inward on ourselves. We'll give way to the flesh over the spirits and reject your call to lay down our lives for each other. And so we need your help. Open our hearts to hear your word and heed your words. And we do thank you for your word, which is life and which brings life. Amen. Amen. So as you'll see in our title, we're mostly focusing on two key words that appear in this passage, namely headship and submission, because we know that's sort of the topics or the questions that people have the most. So our hope is, though, that we can explain these two terms well enough that actually the main word in the passage, which is love, will become the central idea for you. So even though this text is about the marriage relationship, it actually really applies to, and I feel this so deeply, it really applies to all of our relationships as men and women together, as brothers and sisters in the church, how we treat one another and how we view God's kingdom. So let's look at submission first because it appears first. So verses 21 through 22 say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So right away, there's something really important here, and that is that verse 21 is the main thesis statement or heading of this passage. Everything else that follows is a fleshing out of what this means. And what do we notice about verse 21? That we are all called to submit to one another. Every believer is called to submit. So you might kind of be wondering, 
why have I never noticed uh, that before? Or why have I never been kind of taught that when it comes to this passage? And uh, one reason is that unfortunately, due to male bias and Bible headings and layout, which are not original uh, to the text, by the way, historically, and until more recently, there was a heading break between verses 21 and 22 in almost every Bible translation. So you see an example here of often how it was, see how it says wives and husbands and starts there in verse 22. But what this did is it disconnected the specific teaching in verse 22 that wives submit to their husbands from the more general admonishment in verse 21 that we are actually to submit to one another. And so it cannot uh, stand alone on its own. And so what would happen, for example, is messages would get preached starting on verse 22. And here's why we can say with confidence that verse 22 cannot stand on its own or be interpreted on its own. The word submission does not actually appear in verse 22. I'd be like, what? No way. That's a huge detail here that maybe you've somehow never heard. Uh, the fact that the word submit doesn't even occur in verse 22, but is only implied by verse 21, makes you wonder how Bible publishers ever decided to divide verse 21 and verse 22 with a heading. But the reality is, um, you know, just kind of speaking truthfully about the past, that men made all those decisions for centuries and at best weren't being sensitive to how uh, it would appear uh, and at worst perhaps were serving their own agenda. But almost all Bibles today um, do put the section heading now before verse 21 because that's what's grammatically warranted. Uh, and you should be cautious with any translation that doesn't. The command in verse 22 is not an isolated teaching, and certainly not a statement that can stand on its own in a vacuum. Right? Verse 22 uh, is subordinate, or must submit, if you will, to verse 21. Uh, so perhaps the most important submission taking place in Ephesians 5 is verse 22 to verse 21. And this is significant because it proves the point that verse 22 is not a command that is only to be applied specifically and only to women. It is simply one of several selected examples, including for men, of the more specific command in verse 21 to submit to one another in Christian love. In other words, Paul didn't, you know, sit down inspired by the spirits and, you know, say to himself, you know, I want to talk about wives submitting to husbands. Uh, that's really a core Christian teaching that people need to be reminded of. No, his spirit-led desire is first and foremost to talk about mutual submission to one another. And then, you know, he decides that, okay, let me give an example of what that could look like and what it might, how that might work. 
Right, and marriage is a beautiful picture of where this does work. The good way to think through this or translate this is to think of verse 21 as the thesis statement, the main heading or the point that explains what follows it. So the main argument would be submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And point one would be, here's how wives can submit to husbands. Point two would be, here's how husbands can submit to wives. And then you'll see in verse 33, there's a restatement of the thesis of mutual submission. That's a literary device very common in scripture where it's called an inclusio, where something happens at the beginning and something happens at the end and they match. So it helps you interpret what happens inside of it. So that's why translations such as the New Living Translation might say something like, for wives, this submission means, and go on to explain. For men, this submission means, and go on to explain. Verse 22 is Paul giving real life application, an example of this principle of mutual submission. So we can and should say, biblically, should the wife submit to her husband? Yes. And then biblically, should the husband submit to his wife? Also, yes. And you could easily, you know, flip the commands here and have it say, you know, husbands, submit to your wives. And then as we'll get to wives, love your husbands as Jesus loved the church. That would just as accurately make Paul's uh, point here and flesh out his thesis of submitting to one another. I mean, both commands certainly apply to both sexes here. And it's not surprising that Paul would say, wives submit to your husbands, for that was, you know, widely accepted in the culture at large in that day. Uh, what is surprising, if not you know, scandalous and shocking and subversive, is, as we'll see, the even more challenging exhortation that he gives to men in calling them to give up themselves for their wives. But Paul's a smart writer, and you know, he realizes he can, he can only rock the boat so much without being completely dismissed. And so at first, he's kind of winning over his audience. You know, wives, submit to your husbands. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, you know, this, this Christian thing, it sounds, sounds good, sounds respectable, makes sense, that's solid teaching, we're, we're used to that. And then the shock, kind of comes when he says, husbands, you too. So a similar situation comes up also in this passage and later in chapter 6, when Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's now talking to slaves and masters, and he encourages slaves to obey their masters as a way of serving the Lord. And that honestly would be typical, even expected advice in a world where slavery had always existed. It was a societal norm. But then Paul also says, masters, treat your slaves well because God is watching, which is more of a new teaching and it was countercultural. So does that mean that this power relationship between masters and slaves is God's idea? It's like what the Bible wanted. No. Is slavery a God-ordained institution? No, of course not. It's the antithesis of God's desired kingdom. But Paul is speaking into the reality of that world in that, in that time and pushing the issue probably as far as it could go. So in the same way, should there be a hierarchical power relationship between, between men and women, husbands and wives? Is that the biblical ideal? Is male superiority or authority a God-ordained idea? No, but at that time, there was no way to imagine a world of actual full equality between men and women. So I just want to, sorry, I brought something extra. Just want to share this beautiful quote that I just saw this week. I will submit, okay. Yeah, better. Um, and this is from 
we've referenced him before, one of the most prominent Canadian theologians who thinks really clearly and speaks and writes well about these things. And he says, salvation in the gospel comes to everyone and comes to everyone fully. Because of that, that salvation actually challenges what we think is right about who's more important or who's more superior or who's naturally in charge in our world. So in church fellowship, the implication follows that status is to disappear. Wives can thus minister to husbands. Children can bless parents. Slaves can help masters. The gospel both literally reframes and restructures society within the church and within each local gathering of believers. Right, so in the same way that you know, we don't read the Bible as condoning slavery, uh, we should not read it as condoning you know, male hierarchy or superiority. And just as no one in the first century was going around saying, is slavery wrong? Because no one could imagine a world without slavery. I know it feels so wrong to us today, but, you know, but similarly, people weren't going around in Paul's day asking, hey, patriarchy, male, hi male hierarchy, for it or against it, hot topic, we're debating it. Like, it wasn't a discussion, it was just a given that men were superior to women. And so it wasn't even a question that would be asked or up for discussion. It was a cultural reality in that day. But that's what makes Paul's advice here even more shocking, right? It's not shocking that he says wives to submit to your husbands or even slaves obey your masters. What is shocking is that he does not go on then to say, oh, and husbands, here's how you exercise your authority over your wife. Or masters, here's how to get the most out of your slaves. No, instead he challenges those in power to act differently. And so before uh, we get to headship, the other word here or topic, uh, we want to give just one example of mutual submission from our own lives to kind of help just give an example and provide some clarity of, of how this might work in a marriage. So uh, when we first got married, believe it or not, over 16 years ago and almost four children ago, uh, I had enrolled in a master's program uh, that I wanted to complete. So despite uh, Hannah also having dreams and plans to do a specific uh, master's graduate level program somewhere, uh, you know, she supported me at that time and sort of humbly submitted to my desire and laid down her own wants for the moment. And I always tell it this way because it's one of the many gifts that Joseph has given me and why we're actually here in this country is that when he finished that, he had more he wanted to do. He wanted to go on. As you know, he wanted to do a PhD, which he eventually did. But despite that, he said, after this, we're going wherever you want to go. I know you want to go to theological graduate school. Start looking around. And one day he came home and I was, had been looking at the website of Regent College and I said, you said we could go anywhere. Does that include Vancouver? And he said yes. And we, he willingly packed up everything and he worked while I was in school and supported me in every way. And that was a gift to me and something that I, I treasured those years of education that I had. And the timing was really important to me because it was before I had kids. So that was one thing that he's given me that really he could have decided to just keep going. There were more institutions in our area. He could have just kept going with his education, but instead he gave it to me. So. And you might say, isn't Joseph biblically the head of the household? Doesn't he get to make those decisions? So let's talk more about what the Bible says about headship. 
Now, headship is actually not a word in the Bible, but it's what we use to talk about this concept because it's based around the word head in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. So the word head here in, is Greek, it's kephale, has received a tremendous amount of attention for what it means, which we can only briefly summarize here. But really, the most literal meaning has to do with anatomy, the part of the body. And unfortunately, our English understanding of the word, how we use it now, as in head of household or head of government or head of operations or head honcho even, has influenced our understanding. But these meanings of head were not fully developed in the first century and were not the primary way the word was used in the culture or in the text. The sense of head as in in charge was actually very rare in ancient Greek. And there's little, little to no evidence that the word primarily means leadership or authority or the person in charge. In fact, there are tons of Greek words that mean that and Paul had them all at his disposal, but he chose the word kephale. Yeah, so if we wanna determine you know, our theology and the way we live off of what the Bible and its words mean, and I hope that you do, we should want to use the word the way the Bible actually uses it and the Spirit actually inspired it, amen? So what is that way? Well, likely the best meaning of the word that takes into account its, its biological symbolism uh, is perhaps life-giving source, for that's what it seems to mean uh, here and in other places in the Bible and the ancient world. Uh, the word was used in the ancient world for the source of a river, uh, which is where we get the language for and imagery found, for example, in the word headwaters. Right, so it's more that kind of idea. So today, you know, when we think of head, we think more of boss or leader or authority over, but in those days it would be more source, as in origin, or the starting point from which life flows. And so therefore the connotation of the word is also uh, origin. And specifically here, it's a historical allusion to the reality that in creation, uh, woman was created, given life, or, or originated, or was sourced from, if you will, the rib of Adam, right? An actual part of his body, just as the church, as this verse mentions, and that's how we kind of know what it's talking about, the church was born and created and exists from the very body and blood of Christ. Later in this passage, in verse 31, uh, as we'll discuss, Paul quotes right from uh, the Genesis creation account. And then furthermore, in, in a very similar passage in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the word uh, kephale is also appears, and that passage also alludes to the Genesis creation account in its context. So when Paul uses the word uh, kephale or kephale, which means head, he seemed to have like origins on his mind in both places. So we're actually going to discuss that other passage in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, which sheds uh, quite a bit of a light on this passage in a separate uh, teaching follow-up video to this message, which we'll uh, explain at the end. We wish we had uh, more time here. But in that similar passage where it says the man is the head, same word, of the woman, it can't possibly refer to any kind of superiority or else it would actually lead to biblical heresy and we'll explain why in the video right so 
what does Paul actually say about the headship of Christ? What he says is not specifically in this passage focusing on Jesus' role as Lord or King or ruler, but as Savior. And Savior talks more about what he offers to the church, which is salvation and new life. Paul talks about how Christ, the head, gave of himself, literally poured out a portion of himself for us, the church, and that the husband is to do the same for the wife, to pour himself out and give of his life in order to bring life to his wife. That's what it means biblically to be a head. So you can see that any claim of power or authority tied to headship doesn't make sense or fit the context of this passage. Here in Ephesians, the husband and Christ are called the head to refer to their role as a source of life to another. So, you know, speaking to men, uh, if you want to be the head of the home, make sure you know what that means, right? That you will give of yourself and be a source of life to your spouse and to your family. That just as Jesus' life flows in and through the church in order to bless the world, in the same way the husband offers all he has so that the world may be blessed through his family. Mm -hmm. See, being the head has nothing to do with, you know, ordering everyone around uh, or everyone kind of serving your wants and needs. In fact, it's pretty much the opposite, right? It's serving the wants and needs of another. It's closer to submission, really, which is why Paul uses it as, his, as a part of his argument on mutual submission and to lead into his example of submission for men. So let's go there in verse 25, where it says, uh, husbands, and remember this kind of, it's referring back to husbands, submission means this, this is his example for men, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he fleshes out what that means in verses 26 to 30. But just think of that language there gave himself up for her. What does that sound like? Sounds like submission. As with Christ in the church, Paul says the husband is to devote and submit himself to his wife's betterment, to be committed to her flourishing in the same way Christ is committed to the flourishing of the church. And just think about you know, how many wives throughout history have given up their dreams, their careers, their goals, their jobs, so that their husbands can fulfill theirs. Now, is that necessarily wrong? No, not at all. For the wife is called to love like Jesus loves the church. She's not off the hook any more than the man is off the hook to submit to his wife. But if we're just going by the separate examples of submission that Paul gives here, if anything, the husband here is called to greater submission than the wife. I mean, to the point of completely giving himself up for her the way Christ did for us, the church. And again, you might be like, wow, how come I haven't heard this before? How come it hasn't been taught this way? I've only heard of men being the head and women submitting but haven't heard of husbands giving up themselves for their wives or striving for their betterment, causing them to flourish or valuing them as their own body. Well, the reality is, 
As both men and women have often read the Bible through a male-centered lens, even most Bible interpreters have been male. So that's an encouragement to all of us to continue to study our Bibles, but also to women to do the work to get your education if that's something that God has put on your heart. Absolutely. Ladies, go get that Bible degree. But just to make this point, I mean, imagine if, if women had equal authority and influence over the centuries, which they have not, uh, including in the church, the way men have. I mean, if women had been interpreting the Bible, and specifically the creation account in this verse quoted in Ephesians 5.31, which is directly from Genesis 2.24, where it says, you know, for this reason, meaning to love and to give himself to his wife, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I mean, if, if we looked at it through different eyes, we could almost just as easily say that any implied hierarchy of the text could easily be interpreted in favor of the woman, right? I mean, as woman is, you know, created last, right? And, and fashioned from the superior material of Adam's rib rather than the lowly dust like the man is, right? She becomes the pinnacle or crowning achievement and grand finale of creation, rescuing man from his loneliness as he leaves his family and is appended to her life in which he finds all his meaning and significance. Now, obviously that's an equally unfair reading and hopefully you get that Joseph is joking and don't go post that on YouTube. I was just being satirical, by the way. But the biblical answer is not role reversal, that women are in charge of men and need to push men down. The biblical answer is mutual love and respect and submission. And that, of course, applies not just in marriage, but also in our life as the body of Christ. But in marriage, it says each one of you who must, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And it's very possible, some have argued, that this should actually be translated that each husband among you must love his wife as himself so that the wife may respect her husband. Yeah, so in other words, uh, respect of a wife for her husband cannot be demanded as some biblical command, right? Rather, it can only be earned through sacrificial, life-giving love. And that's a principle that would apply to everything in life, right? So we made it to the end of the text. Congratulations. Exhale, in case you were holding your breath uh, through all that. But uh, let's just review then the key takeaways or summaries, because for, for some, not all, uh, maybe that was a lot of new information there. But uh, number one, just a couple key takeaways would be, uh, and I know it's kind of small there, but we'll post these slides eventually. The Bible calls both men and women, husbands and wives, to submit to love and respect each other and you know scripturally we can say that this is actually the far more prominent teaching than any distinct marital roles or positional authority and this mutual submission is evidence of or what it means to be filled with the spirit so if you want to be more spirit filled we want more of the spirit in our lives one way we can do that is ask the lord to help us to respect and love the men and women in our lives to give them that love that christ gives them as well third takeaway would be that the most likely meaning of the word uh, head kafale is life-giving source or origin so just think of it closer to head waters than head honcho and if paul 
had wanted to clearly communicate that positional authority. He had a lot of other words at his disposal. And then lastly, uh, kind of just a more general argument, the trajectory of the scriptures is always toward greater equality rather than stricter hierarchy. So we fully understand that this explanation of Ephesians 5 doesn't mean that we all fully understand this topic. So what we have done is we have created a separate teaching video that answers a little bit more application type questions like, what about some other Bible passages that says that women should not teach or that men are a superior authority or that seem to say that? Or what do I do if my, my husband continually insists that I submit to him? Or here's one we get asked a lot if there's disagreement between husband and wife, who gets the final word? And lastly, what does it mean for a man or a woman to be a leader in the home? Right, so look for that link uh, eventually in the description uh, for this video below where we'll answer uh, some of those questions. Uh, lastly, for more uh, resources, uh, including my book, if I may say so, uh, where I lay out uh, kind of a way of reading or interpreting these types of scriptural texts, um, you can visit the book's site, which is just thegenderparadox.com. Final word of advice. We should work out our theology in the context of worship and with freedom. You don't have to be fully where we've arrived yet. You don't have to be, you know, in a certain place that there's freedom here in our church to work out our theology and what we think in the context of worship and life in community, okay? So it's okay if you're like, ah, just, I'm still not sure what I think. That's perfectly fine, okay? I want to put you at ease. Meaning, you know, let's give ourselves a chance to just experiment with this a little bit. For experience actually is an important part of the interpretive process when it comes to understanding the Bible. You know, so for example, you know, you might find that as you both commit to mutually submit to each other in marriage and don't view it through a hierarchical lens, that it begins to bring healing and wholeness and a different joy maybe that you haven't experienced before in your marriage. And your marriage begins to actually bear fruit like never before, which is perhaps just the evidence that what we've explained today here is, is, is actually true in God's desire. Uh, or speaking, you know, outside of marriage, you might want to experiment with just putting yourself under the, uh, you know, authority uh, or teaching of women. And I'm talking to both men and women here and see what you might, might learn, right? Watch how the church benefits and begins to flourish when uh, women are given equal voice on the leadership level. And we've certainly seen it here at our, you know, growing and, and fruitful church where I think, you know, six of the eight years we've been here, we've had a majority uh, female board or council, uh, including now. At one time, actually, it was even all uh, women uh, here on the board. But ask yourself, you know, have you been blessed by the pastoral ministry and leadership of our female pastors, right, of Hannah, of Ellie, for those who were uh, there previously, of Lydia? Right? Were they acting unbiblically or ungodly by preaching the word to you and being in a position of, of authority as a pastor? Uh, so what might that say in how we view you know, God's idea of leadership in the church and in the home? So we're going to do that right now. We're going to practice working out our theology and worship and in the spirits together.